Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 226 being recorded on Thursday, July 9th. 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about one of our favorite topics, marketplaces. And we're excited to get a global perspective from Hendrik Lobsher. Hendrik joins us live from Cape Town, South Africa, where he is the CEO and founder of Blue Cape Ventures. Guys, uh, Jason and uh, Scott, uh, it's a massive pleasure to be here um, as a regular listener to the guest. I'm glad to be here. We are thrilled to have you on the show. Uh, as you know, we always like to start out by giving listeners a little bit of background about our guests. So can you tell us a little about yourself and uh, Blue Cape Ventures as well? So background is um, in the 2000s, um, I worked for um, a Fortune 500 company in the US. Um, I got badly sick, um, was forced to come back home to South Africa and do the, the, the thing that's happened in 2020, people having to rebuild their lives because of conditions that they can't manage themselves. So I went back to school. Um, I then got lucky in 2008 to get onto a rocket ship that was uh, bought by Naspers, uh, one of the biggest uh, investors in the emerging markets, um, and I've pretty much had the e-commerce bug since like early 2000. Um, and uh, I travel around the world. Um, I've gone to Nigeria for business, Turkey, um, China often. I, I travel to the US almost annually, obviously not this year because of what's going on. Um, and then my company, Blue Cape Ventures, we're a a boutique consultancy that helps brands make sense of global markets. Uh, we help investors um, basically determine what's next. I do diligence and all kinds of things that I'm not allowed to discuss because of long and long, long pages of NDAs. I'll not bore you with that. Um, but in general, it's it's about helping people make sense of marketplaces and of global internet commerce, which is it's it's a it's a thing but it's it's still not well understood in my opinion uh awesome and you publish and i may, I may have the uh, frequency wrong but i want to say a weekly email newsletter um where you you recap a lot of global marketplace news so yes so uh what essentially happened was in middle 2000s um i decided or well, when I worked for Naspers, it became quite apparent that understanding what the trends are for e-commerce is, is kind of a big deal, i.e. you don't want to be left behind. So I think the most logical thing at the time for me was to basically go to the US, which is essentially where e-commerce online started. Um, and um, I have since made lots of friends in various cities, such as New York, Seattle, Chicago, and the like. And the, what, I, what I saw with everybody was the same problem. And the problem is people are time starved, like they are still today. However, the newsletter is, is 
mostly aimed at helping people understand what's important because if you miss an important announcement from Amazon or a change or something that happens in the press, the implications are massive. It could be millions of dollars gone like you've never seen before. So the newsletter was uh, was started to help investors and executives and commerce people just know what's going on. And in the newsletter, I normally tackle a, a topic that's either on my mind or it's been on conversations with clients that I think is worth discussing, Jason. Yeah, uh, and I, I have been a regular reader uh, for quite some time. I find it super useful because it's going to come as a shock to you, uh, but uh, Americans are very self-centered. And <laughs> we tend to think that everything happening in commerce and, and uh, retail is happening in the United States, which is, of course... Uh, a giant fallacy. Um, and so I, you know, like to track a lot of the other hot markets. I spend a lot of time tracking China, but outside of the US and China, it becomes much tougher to stay abreast of everything going on. And I, I found your newsletter to be one of the, the best tools for doing that. That, that, that that's, that's one of the primary reasons I do this in the sense that, as you mentioned, you've got the two superpowers but then if you're a brand, you know, you essentially want to be playing in all these other emerging markets as well. So, you know, understanding what is who are the big players, for example, in Germany or in Brazil or in Africa, it's a big deal. So, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a labor of love. Um, it's 25 hours a week where I basically sift through an inordinate amount of con uh, content, normally about 400 stories. Um, and then I curate it based on what I think is important. And, and in general, in general, the feedback's always good. Um, and it's always nice to hear people like yourself talk about it in the way like you do, because that is the purpose of the newsletter. It's about helping people track stuff that's important, because not everybody has a focus and the ability to track multiple markets at once. Yeah, and for and you know, it's an underrated skill to curate and decide amongst all of all of that information what what is important and, uh, and worthy of a time investment. So I appreciate that you're good at that and you do it for me. Um, and I know you primarily have been working from your home office. So I just want to double check. Has anyone told you that you're, you're actually quarantined now and not allowed to go out? <laughs> so, uh, yes, uh, I think that can, can be described as the, the 2020 mantra in the sense that we get told a lot of things. Um, so South Africa, we've, Today is, I think, day number 106. We've we've, we've been under COVID-like um, restrictions. So it's not really changed anything for me in the sense that I've worked remotely uh, for, for, for over three years. So I may be based in South Africa, but my clients are based in the U.S. and in China and in Europe. So my day is generally like that advertisement we see on, on TV. It's, it's, it's not a 12-hour day so it's it's yes, there are restrictions, but it's luckily you know like you're like everybody on this call you know we and on the podcast um you know we are able to work remotely and interact with our clients remotely, and you know it's 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 kind of been like really uh interesting to see how the world has changed in the space of three to four months. Very cool. Well, let's dig in on marketplaces. So we, uh, you know, we teased folks at the top there. Um, you know, so it's, it's been really interesting here in the U.S. You know, we've seen these cycles of marketplaces where you had kind of like the pure plays, like the eBay's of the world, and then you had a lot of the retailers have added marketplaces. That's been a big trend. Now we're seeing kind of these 
Previously, niche marketplaces get a lot of play like Etsy. Um, people have always been surprised how big that niche is. I don't even know if calling it a niche is a thing. And then even, you know, we're seeing marketplaces stretch into car sharing and Airbnb, uh, just a variety of different different explosions of this concept. Um, you know, what what are you seeing from a from your your position there or kind of the trends and where we are in this life cycle of marketplaces more from a global perspective? So from a global perspective, I think it's 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 very dependent on what markets the marketplace are in. So at a very high level, I think you can see that in Europe and in the US, um, marketplaces are are pretty mature um, and are in most cases uh, very horizontal um, and are in most cases either getting regulated or are in the processes of being more regulated. So it it feels to me personally that the the growth has stagnated. Um, so it's much more of just let's wash, rinse, wash, rinse, wash, wash rinse, repeat. Um, but if we look at globally, um, I, I think in China, what's very clear is that we've got the ecosystems that are uh, evolving where consumers are able to access, like Amazon in the US, anything from entertainment to shopping to on-demand to video to all kinds of things where it doesn't, it doesn't I haven't seen that, evolve as fast as outside of China, obviously in Latin America, India, the Middle East, while these companies, the marketplaces have been there for between five and 10 years, um, it's still very early and consumers are still now not sure about using them just because of the trust factors and the fact that, you know, you in most cases have Amazon available in the market and that's the, the, the de facto choice in most cases. So, um, and then obviously I have to speak about Africa because I live on the continent. Yo, we, we are still very, very early. Um, and I think the general trend for me is, is that uh, horizontal marketplaces are very, very hard to combat. Um, I think you also see vertical specific marketplaces such as Zalando in Europe um, re-looking at the product market fit and now going after luxury consumers just because of the fact that their market cap isn't growing at, at any at any rate as, as fast as Amazon's in Germany or is globally. So uh, it's to answer your question, your question, Scott, it's it's a very nuanced question in the sense that it's very dependent on the market. But I think in general that the strong are strong and the weak on are hope for hoping that they can can grow at the same speed as the big boys. Yeah, wasn't there at one point there was like a Mercado Libre of Africa where it was kind of like they operated in all the different countries and had some cross border trade? Is is that company still around? I, I can't remember the name of it. Okay, so in Africa at the moment we have, I think there's two real marketplaces or three we can talk about. So there's Jumia, which is the yeah that's the, the marketplace that that's the one you reference that's owned by Rocket Internet that has essentially been uh, relooking the. Uh, the profitability just because of the fact that going since going public on, in the US, it's just not been good. The reports of the quality reports have been disappointing. Then the other one is, um, is more for Africa, which is, is essentially a cross border service that helps Africans shop on all things, uh, Amazon and marketplaces where they control, you know, a warehouse where everything is delivered in package and then being sent to the African continent because. Guys, the thing is, what you guys don't realize is that if you are in Africa by default, um, 
our credit cards are mostly blocked by US platforms. So if I buy something from Amazon, generally I will have a follow-up email saying, look, we need you to prove that you are who you say you are. And can you show us a picture of your credit card? Just because of the fact that fraud is a massive issue. Here. All those so, Nigerian princes that need me to hold their money for them. Uh, yes, I was going to get to that. <laughs> Essentially, we win. You get emails almost daily about the fact that you've won like the, some gazillion dollars from some rich oil family in some African country. And, and sadly, that has made cross-border commerce very difficult in Africa, but it's also... Um, it's made it, it it's made it a very interesting place to look at what's going on and how it's it's changed on a per country basis. Cool. Um, and then uh, the so the COVID has been kind of a global phenomenon, and here in the U.S., it's you know it's certainly accelerated the growth of e-commerce. There's that kind of famous chart that says you know took us. Uh, you know, at 20 years to get to 16%. And then like, you know, in eight months, we accelerated another 10 points or so. Um, Do you think that's going to be a global phenomenon or is it really concentrated in in like the US and Europe? I've been doing and throwing with this, this very specific question. And, and I think I, for me, the trends that I see coming out of COVID is one is, horizontal marketplaces that don't have CPG products have really struggled. So in South Africa, our best marketplace, which is funded by Nasperas, uh, take a lot, had no CPG products and they got, they got really got crushed based on legislation. So I think, I think I, I'm of the, of the belief that I think a lot, a lot of consumer behavior has changed and people have now realized that you can buy over the internet. It's, it's not as bad as everybody thought. Um, also marketplaces in general will have whatever you want um, available as quickly as possible. And in most cases you get it inside two to three days. Um, don't get me started out buying like 24 hour delivery. That doesn't exist. It's just a case of in most markets, I believe we will see, the post-COVID behavior of consumers starting their online search either on Amazon or some on-demand app or some grocery business, I think that's going to be a reality. Because the fact is, guys, is that we are still looking for a COVID, COVID vaccine. And until that, you know, going to the retail store with all of the opportunities to getting sick is still there. It, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a good idea as somebody that's educated to, to go to a retail store. That that is all super awesome, but I am very excited because for the first time in the history of the Jason and Scott show, I finally get to utter one of Scott's catchphrases. He's always stealing mine. It wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without talking about Amazon. I'm I'm joking, obviously, but you recently wrote a really interesting article about PE firms that were acquiring like Amazon FBA businesses. And that's something we haven't really seen in the US, unless Scott's going to correct me on that. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that's playing out? So what's interesting is, is that um, the firms that are referenced in this blog post um, are all USB firms um, and are all interested in this big craze. So as I mentioned in the article, um, PE investors um, and some companies that are venture-backed have now kind of gotten to the degree where they feel that as Amazon's dominance has basically become more 
visible due to logistics and selection and Jeff's infamous flywheel, you get to a point where they want in on it. However, in saying that, these firms, for me, as I mentioned in the article, sometimes I just I just shake my head and like realize, really, is this what you're thinking about doing? And, and the case is, is that there's so many questions that this this FBA thing, uh, I, I, I don't want to call it a trend because it's not a trend. I'm of the opinion that it's a fad in the sense that investors want in on the opportunity. So there's this supposedly 300 billion opportunity for third-party sellers on Amazon. But my question to everybody and on these calls that I've had with these PE firms are, one, uh, you can't have a third-party business on Amazon and 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 then follow the good old PE model of like basically making it bones and basically just bones only without any real investment. That doesn't work. So that that's a, that's a major flaw for me in, in the thinking. Secondly, and and this is normally also when I re- normally realize who I'm dealing with is the question is if you ask these firms. You know, do they know that Amazon in its terms of service is very clear? It does not want third-party sellers selling their accounts. Um, that's a that's kind of a big deal. That's a that's for me is a, a, a massive red flag in the sense that why would you want to spend hundreds of millions of dollars buying something that uh, potentially can be taken away from you very quickly? And then these same investors then are also not aware of the fact that. You know, Amazon, if you're a marketplace seller, the opportunity for them to give you a terms of service violation or for you to have your account blocked, it's it's so large that the risk essentially outweighs, in my opinion, the whole opportunity. In saying that, I think, yes, Amazon is important, but I think if, if you are very being very strategic, you know, I think what's more interesting is is that we are seeing big brands go directly to consumer. But these all these companies are realizing that they have to be closer to the consumer. So my question to all of these PE investors w- were, you know, are you aware that statistically you will get no information from the Amazon black box? And also, you are not going to be able to interact with the consumer. So why on earth would you want to spend something that is essentially a big black, big black box and then you 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 have this projections that you're going to have hundreds of millions of dollars of sales in 24 months time really uh, have you not heard of this thing called the the Amazon honeymoon where after 6 months your all your invitation and hard work of advertising basically goes away i mean so as i mentioned in the article i think it's just it's it's a it's a it's a trend that's I think is a fad, and it's also a case of people not understanding what the opportunity is. And if it's an opportunity, my question is why have the big, really good investors in commerce? You know, I'm not going to mention any names because there are plenty of them. You know, why are they not investing in these Amazon FBA businesses? Why is it PE firms that have names that you will never ever hear in public because they just you don't know about them? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting theory. So that so, you know, so I'll play the other side of the coin. You could go buy four or five of these, you know, we'll call them marketplace centric businesses and have a hundred million dollar kind of top line business growing pretty rapidly, right? 
and you know some some diversification of categories. Um, but to your point, you do have this you know single point of failure with with Amazon and and the other marketplaces. And and I think what a lot of the the theories I've heard is you know, gosh, if that's a hundred million dollar business on these marketplaces, if we really kind of put the offering out with an e-commerce front end, maybe we could get double it, you know, over three or four years. Now you have a $200 million business, hundred million e-commerce storefront, hundred million marketplaces, this generating, you know, this is all financial modeling, you know, the, 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 the EBITDA, the cash flow EBITDA uh, elements would then, because they're buying these things really cheap, it kind of hits that private equity ROI. And then of course they're buying it all with super cheap debt uh, on, on top of that. So you know, I agree with you. It's definitely a riskier play than they probably realize they're getting into. Scott, for me, the thing is, yes, I, I hear that argument, but for me, the case is, is that if you're an investor, your, your biggest uh, like point is you will need to generate ROI for your investors. And for me, the, the biggest thing that I continuously see, which makes my head spin is, is that people forget it's easy to model that something, a business that you basically buy is going to do $100 million in EBITDA and all that stuff. But the reality is, is that you need skills which are not in, in, in demand um, and it's not available for cheap, number one. Number two, what I also don't blows my mind is there's this assumption that commerce is easy. It's not. And the the amount of work that needs to, for an e-commerce business to generate two hundred million dollars and and run rate and EBITDA and all that stuff, it's a lot. So yeah, I, I consider me just I, I'll just consider I'll just continue just being completely in awe of the the delusion that I see from investors just because of the fact that it doesn't make any sense to me. And and for that, in saying it's not like I have not had any commerce experience. You know, it's when I speak to my friends in the space, we all say the same thing. E-commerce is really, really, really hard. And the opportunity for points of failure, it's there's a million opportunities for stuff to go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't uh, this is a sidebar, but I don't know if you've been following the, the Elliot drama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we actually had them on the show Um you know, really good PR, uh, and then they just recently imploded because I think they had this 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 excellent vision, um, but unfortunately, you know, I, I don't think that they could kind of execute on that, or and the, there's all this kind of weird stuff coming out now, so it, it is hard, you know. So, uh, anything else on Amazon before we we change topic? Yes, yes, I think I I think we just need to quickly mention that yesterday Amazon made something really interesting. They made a very interesting announcement. The announcement essentially is that. Um, businesses, uh, third-party businesses, uh, the account details will now be shown by default. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, this is on one another one of the attempts at trying to show that they're solving the counterfeit product problem by showing the details of the business owner and the the entity that on Amazon. And yeah, I, I must say, I I I I think it will only harm small businesses because. We will see more lawsuits in terms of enforcement of brands and all that stuff. But does it really solve Amazon's really big problem of counterfeit? Yeah, I'm not so sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure why they're doing that. Uh, I've seen some folks in the press saying, you know, this is going to solve all these things. But, you know, what you'll having, you know, having talked to most of these sellers, you're going to find out it's going to be, you know, some random LLC at some random address. It's not going to be super informative. I don't think it's going to be this like, 
oh my God, that secret seller was really Jason Goldberg. <laughs> and now we know <laughs> yeah. selling Hawaiian shirts on, on Amazon. Exactly. I, I think part of it is, is a simple liability issue that like, you know, in general, Amazon takes a lot of the positions that, hey, we're not the seller. The, the liability is on the, on the seller. Um, and there's a bunch of different permeations of that. And so I, I think people are like, well, how, how can you say they're liable when you won't, you know, you're shielding who they are? Yes, I hear that. But my argument to that specific story, Jason, is, is that this announcement has been active in Japan and in the UK for over two years. And it's not changed a lot. The only thing oh, yeah. that it's done, what's, what it's done is it's just basically helped the government con, con, uh, collect tax. Um, so hello, Wayfair and all of that complications and tech nexus. And does it really solve the issues that Scott mentioned? Mm, yeah, I'm not so sure. I no, no, I'm, is- I'm, don't get me wrong. I 100% agree with you. I don't think it changes anything. But I think it was a checkbox thing that Amazon had to do <laughs> to, to retain their their claim um, more so uh, no, no, no. than anything else. And per Scott's point, like there's a funny thing that we see in the US a lot. There's a lot of brands that want to toe dip in direct to consumer, but they don't want their wholesale partners to know. Um, and so they, they find a third party entity to be a 3P seller on Amazon on their behalf. And so it's it amounts to a shell company for a big CPG. And they're they're not doing anything illegal. They just don't want their their trade partners to know that they're also selling on Amazon. And, you know, uh, per Scott's point, if they have to disclose they're going to disclose that shell company. It's not like it's going to suddenly reveal some super well-known CPG on the, on the Amazon registry. Yeah, correct. Uh, one thing I definitely wanted to chat about is I, I know you, you worked for a comparison shopping engine at one point or, or were heavily involved in the industry. Um, seems like that's kind of died off maybe with the exception of Google shopping, which, which I think is trying to turn into a marketplace. They're just kind of struggling to get there. Um, do you think comparison shopping engines are dead or, or are they actually pretty vibrant in other parts of the world? So Scott, I think the sad reality is, is that, I think you've you've nailed the explanation about Google's comparison shopping. It's 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 neither here nor there. Um, and sadly, the way I look at commerce is, it generally starts with classifieds, then it moves to marketplaces, and then it moves to brands. And there's no mention of comparison shopping. I I'm of the opinion, and I'm I'm not even of the opinion. Having seen having worked with companies over the last three years, it's comparison in was was at the time was great. It's a it's a legion it's a legion situation, but consumers no longer want the legion. They want uh, a platform where they can buy, get everything done, and contact somebody when something goes right or wrong. And I just think that from a comparison point of view, as 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 it pains me to say, it's just I think it's one of those things that we will just remember fondly, and it will just vanish sadly. Yeah, yeah, it's fun, fun, fun times, but but. The time is up. How about um, how about these marketplace initiatives from? So we mentioned Google, but you also have Facebook kind of flirting there with with kind of they started with the classifieds. I don't know if this is global or not, but they have in the US have this marketplace, and now they've announced you know kind of um, checkouts and things that they're doing. Um, then we have Shopify. Is is Shopify a global phenomenon? Or are you seeing, or is there kind of like a version of a Shopify out there that is the non US Shopify that that's got a lot of traction? So to answer your multi-threaded question there, <laughs> um, I knew you so, could. I knew you could parse it. 
so let's let's start with the first thing is is yes facebook marketplace is available in south africa but like in the u.s and i and i hate saying this and i don't want to be derogatory but it's a cesspool it's it's a crime haven which is a nightmare so i don't see that going anywhere i've heard murmurs anecdotally that they're going to change the name of it because of the fact that it's it's got a very bad perception outside the u.s so I, I'm, I'm not sold on Facebook commerce myself. I just, I don't think they have the DNA for it. In saying that, let me just before you guys jump in and, and hit me over the head with something. Um, it's a case of, I, I, I still think that Instagram is a massive opportunity. Um, and Instagram shopping, I just noticed since like February of this year with, the, with, with COVID, um, Using Instagram to find local businesses is way easier than using Google. So I think there's a definite definite opportunity for them um, to actually capture a part of the market that isn't getting a lot of love, i.e. the local situation. Uh, in terms of your Shopify comment, um, uh, Shopify outside the US is massive. It doesn't get a lot of love because they don't want to give away the kimono and show the world that it's a big business, but it's a massive business. And more brands are beginning to realize that Shopify provides you with all the tools, all the extensions and applications and whatnot and expertise that you can, can whip up a website very quickly. And uh, it's, it's, it's for me, it's, 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 we're in an interesting time in the sense that these rumors that big commerce is going to IPO which I don't think is going to be the case. I have a feeling that they might be bought on 99 and a half by somebody. Um, and then you have work, WordPress commerce, which is here and all there. But I think Toby's mission and that of Shopify in empowering the rebels, I think it's a big deal. And I, and I continue to be amazed at their, at the, just their business. I know Jason got a lot of flack for not being very cool on the, the whole shop app. Um, <laughs> I saw that, and and I and I and and I'll be honest. I, I I've used it, um, and it's it's nice, but it's it's the value add is questionable. But but the, but the point is is that this is a company that has evolved and grown at the space in the North American market that has basically got people excited. And let me just also just jump in and say. Don't get me started on the comparison between Shopify and Amazon. There is no comparison. They are two different businesses with two different business models. There's nothing that gets me more aggro when I see people comparing Shopify with Amazon. It's neither here nor there. They are either complementary to one another or they do, they, they're in their separate lanes. But don't start me on the whole comparison story because that also is just a big ball of hot air. Yeah, uh, we, we're 100% aligned on that. I, those comparisons annoy me. And I mean, they're inevitable because they're two fast growing, well-known companies that are, quote unquote, in the commerce space. So it, and everyone's desperate to write about their being a, a foil for. <laughs> but Jason, for which, which one's going to win? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, to be honest, like and nobody likes it when I say this, but uh, to me, Am Amazon Marketplace and marketplaces in general like the main value add they give is, is they find audiences for you. They're they're a traffic yep. source. Yep. And so when I think of Amazon Marketplace, I, like the primary competitors for Amazon Marketplace in North America are Google and Facebook. Um, and and you know I would argue that for uh, audiences with purchase intent, 
Amazon's consistently winning. So we're seeing audiences leave Google and Facebook to, uh, mm-hmm. to, to go to, to uh, Amazon. I think Facebook's making more progress on uh, discovery experiences and certainly Instagram. And, you know, frankly, I think uh, TikTok's recent problems are probably also going to directly benefit uh, Instagram. Um, so that, that stuff's all super interesting. I do have to tell you, uh, Toby's blowing up my Microsoft Teams channel right now. Um, he, the answer is, uh, Shopify is very big outside the U S because Shopify isn't even a U.S. company. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, moral of the story is, is that Shopify is for me, it's, it's a, it's, it's getting to a ubiquitous term in the sense that it's helping people get online. And that for me is in, in a time where we see retailer after retailer going, uh, into liquidation or bankruptcy or whatever. For me, that that for me is the one angle that I hope people spend more ink on instead of saying it's it's like you were saying that it's going to be the future or it's going to win or whatever. That's irrelevant. The point is is that this is getting uh, brands on the internet. It's getting consumers the opportunity to to buy from uh, consumers, uh, being able to buy from brands and. To, to your question, to your statement, Jason, about the, the competition for for Amazon, I totally agree with you. And I think what you've what we what I've seen is is that these DTC businesses, which have also basically been seen as the the solution to all brands' problems, which is also not the case, is if you are a what I've seen is is that if you're a DTC business and you've you've hit the plateau at twenty five million dollars in annual sales. You know, where do you go to get that next round of growth? And in most cases, it's Amazon. As much as they hate the platform, that's the platform that they use to grow, whether it be through a different product product line or something else. But the point is, you're 100% right. It's purchase intent and essentially monetizing data that nobody else has got to get people to buy your product. And, And that is essentially what Amazon is at a, at a very micro scale in the sense that it's a post office, it's a marketing firm, and then with a, with a slight dash of retail in it. And that for me is one of the biggest misunderstandings of all of this. Yep. Yep. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, an important distinction, they're in the business of renting you the audience, not selling you the audience. Yes. For your earlier Sorry. point, all these, Sorry. yeah, all these companies that are, um, you know, thinking like, oh, that's the way to get customer intimacy. And I, I talk to a lot of brands that are like, my direct to consumer strategy is to sell through Amazon. I'm like, oh yes, nice. <laughs> I'm like, nice. nice. Amazon's in the business of owning the audience and loaning it to you, not let, letting you acquire it through them, right? So exactly. Um, but you did uh, cannot be cannot be said. And and owning versus renting or loaning, it's 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 a massive. It's one of the things that I also see. I totally agree with you. I also see that now here that and I just think, but guys, really, this is not like inside baseball knowledge. You know, this is out there in the public. This is what consultants should be telling brands. You know, Amazon isn't your friend. It's it's merely a, a channel to get you to grow. But that's but that's it. Yeah, uh, for, we totally agree. You um, you mentioned. Uh, the the digitally native brands that like you know eventually turn up Amazon and marketplaces for scale. I, I want to dive into that a little bit because if you uh, if you m- look at my Twitter feed, you would be utterly convinced that um, 
retail is dead and nobody, nobody, no retailers are doing well, that marketplaces don't exist, and that the future of commerce is 100% digitally native brands that like invent their own flavored water and sell it direct to consumer. Um, and so, is, A, is that like, are you seeing that as strongly outside the US as we're seeing it inside the US? And I would argue that like they're, they're winning hype, but they certainly aren't winning in terms of actual business success. Okay, so there's a million ways that you can unpack, uh, unpack that question. Um, I'll start with the first thing. Um, I also see my Twitter, Twitter followers also. One would swear that retail, retail was supposed to be dead in 1999. It's still alive and kicking. Um, Amazon has come and still there are shops open. And now DBC businesses are supposed to be the flavor of the month. I think to answer your question like bluntly, um, I think DTCs are nice. You know, but it's it's not a silver bullet. And I think very much that outside the US in markets such as India and South Africa and in Brazil and all over the show, we all we all seeing companies like launching direct to consumer. You know, the thing is what I find mind blowing is that direct to consumers has always been there. It's it's just it was called something different. But we've always bought directly from brands. You know, it's not something new. Now you now you buy something that was made in China that, that has a like a massive sticker on that says a name of a of a bag company or a like a toothbrush or whatever. For me, the the the, the thing with DDC businesses are yes, they are great, but my counter counter argument to all of that normally is okay. Um, how many mega mega uh, exits have we seen? Not many. Have we seen any real growth in terms of getting? more than 50% um, of a specific category, excuse me, buy a DTC business. I haven't seen that. Um, and, you know, I, I think what the misconception is, is that essentially these DTC businesses are, it's customer acquisition opportunities. It's bolt-ons. That's what it is. It's a bolt-on for a large brand. So if you are a, Gillette, or you are a Procter and Gamble, or you are a Johnson and Johnson, or whoever, you know these companies ha- have their own legacy issues. Let, let's not get into that. But the point is, is that they haven't done the best job in getting closer to the millennial consumer. So, buying a DTC business, it's not validation that the business is won. You know, I mean, I find it always ironic. These businesses start as they are the anti incumbent and then at the end the incumbent buys them and then suddenly the PR releases site you know we say happy that we are here and everything is glorious and what a great business it is it's like guys get with it it's a it's a customer acquisition play in the sense that a company spending uh, 200 300 400 500 600 a billion dollars on buying access to a consumer group that they've not done well with that's is it is is it and to answer your question about outside the, the US it's still very the same in the sense that these entrepreneurs that are seeing the opportunity for uh, for opportunities to interact with with consumers. But the question that I always come back to, and it's it's I haven't gotten a really nice answer for that, is that what is the actual nexus or like the the defensible of a DVC business? And if you tell me it's community, I'm going to open the window and I'm going to jump because it's not. Don't do it. Don't do it. But I take your point. Really? What what uh what floor of the building are you? 
luckily, I, I'm luckily I'm on uh, I'm on ground level. So if I okay. if I jump right. jump out of the window, I'm gonna just basically fall like a couple of meters. Just land in some bushes. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. With my athletic ability, that could still be perilous. But I trust that you. Can. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. Totally agree. I, I feel like um, emphasizing the the channel at so much like completely misses the point. Like if, if you come to me and say, I've got a great business and it's defining characteristic is that we sell direct to consumers and that's all I know about them. I'm not remotely interested. If you come and say, I've got an amazing product that has this amazing market fit and a lot of people want it. I'm super interested in that business and I'm confident a good, good leadership team can find the right mix of channels to get that to the consumer profitably. Exactly. Um, Jason, and as as you tweeted recently in a question from another podcast host, is is that these, you know, I think it's very important also to notice that while these big CPG companies, i.e. PepsiCo and all these guys are doing the DTC thing, it's very important not to get bought by the by the actual hype in the sense that, yes, the website will continue to look the same. Yes, it will continue to basically show the the same products. It's essentially just these brands wanting first-party data, number one. Number two, they want customer feedback without going through wholesale and retail, which is which is at the moment is a pain. So I think it's very much the DTC thing. It's, it's, a, it's a channel, like you mentioned, totally agreed. And it's not a silver bullet. As I mentioned earlier, commerce is hard and there isn't a silver bullet. Maybe except if you're Jeff Bezos and you have like a bazillion dollars in your bank account. But other than that, for us mere mortals, it's hard. It's a daily struggle of, you know, millions of fail, failing points. And it's just, guys, can I make a consumer happy? Yes or no? If the answer is no, go back to the drawing board and fix it. Yep. Cool. Let's uh, let's pivot to cross-border trade. I know that's another area of interest to you. Um, here in the U.S., we've we've kind of we're, we're years into this kind of Chinese-U.S. trade war, which I think has put a bit of a blanket on it. Um, you know, before then, we had so Alibaba had AliExpress, which was this huge cross-border trade um, kind of behemoth, um, and then we've had Wish, uh, which is a marketplace I've never understood, but is always like exceeding everyone's expectations. Um, what are you seeing from your perch there in South Africa as it relates to cross-border trade? Is is kind of Alibaba running away with this globally or, or, or are there any other players? Uh, so let me just state bluntly, um, in terms of cross-border e-commerce, the Chinese platforms and especially Alibaba, they they like light years ahead of the rest, i.e. why? Number one, they've invested in it heavily. Number two, they've done partnerships with government to, to basically get um, local interaction where they can create like uh, trade-free zones and everything. So to answer your question, Scott, in my long-winded way self, is is that uh, cross-border, yes, I can agree. I totally agree with you. The trade war has impacted it, definitely. However, in saying that, I think what it also has is it's, it's shown companies what their weaknesses are in the sense that um, as much as I, I also I'm fascinated by Wish in the sense that it it makes no it makes no business sense in the sense that you are selling low priced goods, but now you are seeing them pivot into, you know, wanting to offer retail software. They are you know offering uh, retail partnerships, uh, closer fulfillment, and and uh, they they're growing massively uh, in in a country with the name of Brazil, which is far away from everybody in the U.S. So. 
I think cross-border trade for me is, is there. I think it will continue to grow at like light, light speed in the sense that consumers will always want products of high quality, no matter where it's made from. And, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, I buy a lot of products from the US um, just because of the fact that I can't get it in South Africa. So just the confession I have to make you on, on, on this podcast, um, I am a, a, a Swedish fish um, like expert. I love the candy, yet I cannot find it in South Africa. So I have, I have to find a business that brings it to me to South Africa just because of the fact that I love this stuff. So I think with cross-border also, we're seeing a, a slight strategy shift in the sense that uh, like Wish, uh, like what you mentioned Wish, um, I think we are seeing the emergence of platforms wanting to essentially offer local solutions. So um, if AliExpress for me is a business I'm fascinated with in the sense that in the last 18 months, they've pivoted very hard in the sense that they are now offering brands the opportunity to interact with consumers. They are growing gangbusters in uh, in in Latin America. They're growing at the massive knot in Eastern Europe and in Russia, just because of the fact that they have the products for both the high end and the low end, which is not generally available. So, I think the the one factor with cross border e commerce that that's not getting enough attention for me is 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 the whole postage packaging costs and and the fact that you know you have an entity like the USPS that is financially under huge strain just because of legacy agreements in the postal uh, union or if I got the name wrong for it I apologize but the point is is that uh, if you look at the postal business worldwide the post has basically been hit really hard in the sense that people are no longer doing letters I don't know I can't remember when last I got a letter, especially not now. We haven't had posts for like three months. But the point is, is that packages and online shopping has basically become the growth of these businesses. So cross-border places an additional element to it because now you've got to go through border control and product harmonization and costs to get it to the consumer. So I understand that certain countries like the U.S. want higher postage rates because it doesn't make sense that certain countries like China can a merchant can sell it, send it from China to the US. It doesn't make sense. It just, it doesn't. So from a, from a macro, macro point of view is I think what I'm seeing is I'm seeing a lot more cross-border shopping in Latin America. I'm seeing a fair degree in Africa with services such as Morph Africa doing great work. Um, and they, they've gotten a minority investment from DHL, which is a big deal, which for me kind of validates what they've been doing. Um, and consumers generally want they want quality, and if the quality is not available online in the market or in a store, you know they want to be able to go to a website and buy it. And if if that is going to take them ten or twelve or fourteen days, then that's it. It's I think cross borders. I think cross borders is one of the most underappreciated parts in commerce, just because of the fact that it's it's hard. But I think from a growth point of view, it's it's one of the things that I've seen executed well in the last three years. Basically, it just it makes businesses go from good to great really quickly. Yeah, uh, it's super interesting. It's it, we're all a bit on pins and needles here in the U.S. because, uh, as you as you mentioned, the U.S. Post Office was under some severe financial pressure prior to COVID, and and thus far there hasn't been any discussion of uh, economic assistance. So it's uh, uh, it's it's concerning. Um, and obviously, if it, if it were to fail, that 
that benefits the one player in the U.S. that has the, the most of their own last mile, which is, of course, Amazon. Um, I do want to. Uh, oh, and I forgot to ask. Uh, IKEA doesn't do cross-border trade into South Africa to get you those Swedish fish. Um, yeah, but it's 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 too painful. I I want a simple solution. I want to go to one website. I want to to basically put it in my cart, have the easiest execution in terms of my details, and then not have to worry about getting it to me. So, uh, Jason, thank you for your your very nice consideration. But we we have it working and. Um, it works. So awesome. yes, I, I get it now. Okay, cool. Uh, I know you mentioned that a lot of your clients and a lot of the readers of your newsletter are from the venture capital community. Uh, and I'm just curious, like what's, what's your perception of what's going on in that segment at the moment? Like, are they all turtling and slowing down because of COVID? Are they identifying new opportunities and they're hotter than ever? What, what, what are you seeing there? So from a venture point of view, um, I think I think what we're seeing is is we're seeing the great the great investors double down, but they're doing it very quietly in the sense that um, I think investments into certain sectors are, for example, like DTC, you know, it's not going to happen just because of the fact that the model is now basically being shown like uh, the king without the clothes on. So uh, the the good is uh, that I work with, yes, they have continued doing investments, but they're looking for new opportunities. So one of the opportunities that I can speak about, because it's, I think it's very well known, is, is that um, I'm seeing a lot of venture interest in the B2B space in the sense that everybody's now realized that, that the global food supply is not going to be unbroken. So... Um, getting con- getting from the actual farm or manufacturing point to the shop or to the consumer, it's it's still massively, com- uh, massively, massively uh, confusing. So there's an opportunity. Um, I'm, I think the I think the venture investors. The question that I always ask myself is is that an investor is essentially looking into the future, um, and you know what is the next thing? So I think the next thing is is stuff like returns, which is still a pain. Um, there is the B2B space. Uh, I think one has to look at stuff like replenishment rates and, you know, what do consumers need daily? You know, uh, so one of the very interesting things that I've seen in COVID in South Africa, and I've sp- spoken with friends in the US as well, is when COVID struck here, um, flour eggs and orange juice became like lottery tickets in the sense that finding it was one thing getting it into your basket and actually paying for it was like winning like five multi-gazillion dollar lotteries in a sense what it doesn't it just didn't exist so the question for me is i think from a COVID point of view the COVID has essentially shown investors in my opinion that there is opportunity still in commerce um as much as the investor community wants us to believe that Amazon is the be all and see all of e-commerce, it is, they are there, but there are still opportunities. And I think helping suppliers, helping consumers, um, and even helping entrepreneurs solve really hard things. Um, you know, I, I find it really hard to imagine, you know, you're a milk farmer and you're having to basically untap your milk because you can't get it to a, to a, a, a process or, you know, you can't get your oranges on your farm to a, because there's nobody to process it. To me, that, that blows my mind. And, I, and I've been following the stories in the U.S. on that. So 
for me, the opportunities are there. The good investors continue to invest. But what the guy, what the, the, the guys and the girls in the investment space are doing, Jason, is just they're being way more diligent, number one, and they are being way, way more selective in the sense that they want companies that have profitability from day one. Um, they no longer believe in market the market size wins all. So the days of Uber-like growth and spending like a gazillion dollars and having bad actors in your business ever, it's it just doesn't it just doesn't cut it anymore. So from from as I say, all in all, venture is still very much alive. It's just it's quiet, and the guys are all girls are all looking for opportunities for the next thing. Cool. Speaking of the next thing, that's a good time to talk about the future of e-commerce. So it sounds like, you know, you like the B2B space and some of these kind of, you know, less sexy things of returns and whatnot. Um, but let's look out kind of five to 10 years. What are some of the trends you see that that are going to be forming e-commerce as we look out a little bit further? So I think one is, I think I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, but I'm going to say it in any case, I think live streaming is going to become a big deal um, in the sense that, um, getting uh, consumer interaction and relationship building with uh, chefs or uh, creators or uh, key opinion leaders, I think that's that's going global. Um, so that I think is a big deal. I think um, the uh, the unsexy parts of commerce I think uh, will will get solved. So one of the one of the things that I've found really interesting within the COVID space is that. Uh, my QR code for payments has basically skyrocketed just because of the fact that actual uh, money and and card usage is it's it's not really safe. So you want something where you can basically pay for a purchase easier. Or in Jason's case, you know he wants to know that if he whips out his phone and he buys his Starbucks, you know he's going to get it like immediately. There's no opportunity for uh, something to happen that where it gets blocked. Sorry, Jason. I just I had, God, God I had, bless you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think from the from a future point of view, I think we will see uh, the the other thing that I think is not getting a lot of a lot of attention currently is I think getting um, ex retail staff back to work is is a very big opportunity that I see just gaining more speed with you know today reading that solar table has also gone for bankruptcy. It's, it's really been Brooks Brothers yesterday. It's it's really been hard to read now. And, and the thing is what for me gets lost in this conversation is that uh, retail restaurants in general have of staff in it. So these are two sectors that have been absolutely battered. So getting those people back to work and, and guys, let me just be clear on something. This does not mean that they are all going to work in FBA warehouses. If you tell me that people are going to work and warehouses, I am going to once again open the window and jump one floor because that's not the work. I'm talking about actual staff who used to work at Nordstrom's or Brooks Brothers or in categories that are have been really hard to solve. So fashion is still a return of the loser story. Uh, large value, large items such as freezers and fridges and white goods, it's still a pain. Um, we just have to look at Wayfair's finances to just to see what the struggle that continues to be. Um, so I'm pretty bullish. I think I think one also has to be very realistic in the sense that um, I I don't see e-commerce ever getting past 50% of total retail in any market. If I just look at what's going on in China, 
the investment into like uh, multiple channels. Um, I'm not going to use the word that plays another word, omnichannel word that I can't stand. Um, the moral of the story is is the consumer now expects to be communicated with the same message, whether it's in store, whether it's online, whether it's in a small version store, whether it's at the collection point, whether it's with the on-demand delivery. The, the experience now is it's way more uh, sophisticated than what it what, than what it was pre-COVID. In the sense that COVID has made me uh, more appreciative of the hard work that the logistics folks do. You know, I think driving a UPS or a FedEx truck daily must not be the greatest job ever. Yet these people do it, and it's a thankless job. But these thankless jobs have become really important. So I'm hoping that you know stuff like autonomous delivery uh, basically evolves from being a PR term. Hello, Jeff Bezos, and your 60-minute section on uh, your drones and actual, you know, getting deliveries to people in like uh, uh, retirement complexes, which are at the moment at massive at risk because of COVID. And these, these just, I think Scott summarized it really well at the top of the question. That is, there's a lot of unsexy opportunities in commerce that remains massive 10x opportunities. Uh, that is a exciting thing to be thinking about. And uh, it's going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Uh, as always, if you enjoyed the show, we sure would love it if you'd uh, jump on to uh, iTunes and give us that um, five-star review. If you have any questions or comments about the show, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, but Hendrik, really appreciated uh, you taking the time out and uh, really in- enjoyed your perspective. Uh, gentlemen, um, Scott, Jason, it's it's been a privilege. Um, it's I always enjoy following your your Twitter streams in the sense that it's always a, a good, it's a reality check about what's going really on. Um, and being able to share the international's perspective with your listeners, I think, is important just because of the fact that sadly the world is is more flat than what it's ever been. Yeah, thanks, Hendrik. And if if folks want to kind of follow you, what's where where do you mostly publish your thoughts? So the easiest way um, is on Twitter. Um, so my Twitter handle is uh, H-E-N-L-A-U-B. It's the, my first three letters of my name and surname. Um, I have uh, pinned a tweet at the top of the page for folks that want to subscribe to my newsletter um, because I, I'm blessed with one of the most hard names and surnames to remember. So just look at my Twitter handle in the show notes. That's the easiest way to subscribe to the newsletter. Um, and I look forward to getting a, a few new readers. Yeah, we, we uh, I think I speak for Jason. We strongly recommend your newsletter. I know we, we've really enjoyed it and get a lot of really good flavor for what's going on um, outside of the our little bubble in the U.S. Uh, for sure. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 